Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Python Community News, the show that covers all the non-pippable news around the Python community. I am your host, Jay. I'm John. And we have a, I think, a mess of news is the 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 term to use. I'm actually recording live from a, a remote location in the middle of Georgia, getting ready for a conference next week. But uh, uh, John, how have you been this week? Been pretty good. Uh, lots, lots of news, especially over the past couple of days. So, yeah, we have a lot to talk about today. It's definitely been a a really big news week. But uh, yeah, let's let's take a moment and jump into the news. Uh, we got some quick hits, and we'll start with those. The first one is uh, India and and Bengaluru has been suffering from some pretty wild flooding for the last few days. And you might be wondering, like, that's environmental news, but like. This is like the San Francisco, it's like the Bay Area of uh, India in many cases, and they've been dealing with overpopulation, and now they're dealing with flooding. So uh, if you're on that side of the globe and you've been dealing with some outages of services that you might rely on normally, that's possibly why. Uh, let's let's jump over to the next one, John. Uh, what about someone's been messing with my subnormals? Yeah, so this is a pretty interesting blog post uh, about a... Uh, fast math compiler option uh, used to speed up compilation of of certain types of uh, uh, of math operations uh, for a floating point that results in incorrect math. Um, so it's faster to compile, but uh, but is less accurate. And uh, this this blog author um, goes through the process of finding out that uh, that this was affecting their code and also finding 2,500 uh, Python packages on, on PyPI that are, that are also affected by this. Um, so uh, it's, it's a pretty interesting uh, post to read. Uh, I, I would definitely recommend uh, you know, anybody that has the, has the time to go uh, check out the details there. And if you are uh, compiling packages from source, uh, don't use these options so that uh, they, uh, they don't result in uh, incorrect uh, behavior going out to your end users. Yeah. Do me a favor, John. Go ahead and jump into the next one, too. Talking about some of Google's uh, fuzzy memory corruption issues. Yeah. So this is uh, not all that unrelated of a topic. Um, so Google has this program called uh, OSS Fuzz. So open source software Fuzz is a program that uh, uses fuzz testing against uh, a bunch of open source projects to uh, identify uh, security and other kinds of vulnerabilities. So these are um, a bunch of uh, automated tools that run against, uh, I think they mentioned 500 uh, different open source projects looking for um, vulnerabilities that that you know they're specifically looking for uh, security vulnerabilities, but some of these you know also pick up regular old bugs uh, as they go. Um, and uh, this this particular uh, bug that they found in Tiny GLTF uh, resulted in a command injection bug. Um, so pretty uh, pretty impactful security issue. Um, and this was due to a new type of um, uh, they, they, they call them sanitizers, uh, but a, a new type of uh, uh, program that they, they use built into OSS Fuzz to identify these sorts of vulnerabilities that was introduced back in December. Uh, and so, um, you know, overall, uh, an, a really interesting project that is being used to make open source so software more secure across the board. Uh, and they're also accepting new sanitizers into the program and any sanitizer that gets uh, accepted and finds two security vulnerabilities in one of their projects uh, has has a, a you know a bug bounty attached to it as well. Awesome. And then we got one last one, which uh, I forgot to add in here, so I'm going to do a quick quick link there. Yeah, Python releases Python three ten seven three nine fourteen eight fourteen and seven fourteen, and this actually covers. A, a, a kind of a bug that they found that we could be used to create a potential denial of service. Uh, and it was, you know, pretty interesting how they would do this because most people think of 
you know, computer numbers in terms of like binary, octal, you know, hex and, and 32 based things. But if you're just doing base 10 and you could create a large enough like number and then try to convert it to a string and that would cause denial of service like that would help bring denial of service attacks because of the complexity of the algorithm so that's i mean to me that's just it's one of those things that's incredibly one interesting but also like wild and and it caused them because it was you know easily exploitable it caused them to quickly go in and patch this so those are kind of the quick hits. Again, we had a lot of topics, uh, and I, I want to thank a couple of people that, that submitted those. Uh, one, uh, Sarah Kaiser or Crazy for Pi on Twitter and GitHub, and then also Denny Perez, who I need to get uh, her Twitter handle. Uh, so that's Denny Perez18 on, on Twitter and GitHub as well. And thank you so much for contributing. You can also contribute too. This is... A, a show that is designed to be for, for people to go and check out. And if they see something on the news, uh, they see something in their, you know, RSS feed, they can then jump in and say, hey, I want to I share this with the Python community. Uh, you can do so by going to the repo, which is uh, right now it's my repo. That may change soon. Uh, we're working on stuff there. Uh, but then it's going to be at python-community-news. And you can submit your own topic and go from there and we also have denny in the chat thank you so much denny for the contributions that you had this week so we have two big topics that we kind of want to talk about and and some of them maybe from the perspective of uh beginners in the python community and some may be in the form of just people working in the industry so if you're in the industry uh i want your opinion on on some of this stuff too but let's let's start with that first one from Bloomberg, which is California passes a law requiring companies to post salary ranges on job listings. Uh, John, you brought this one to the table, so I'm gonna I'm gonna kick it to you. Yeah, so this is a pretty uh, interesting thing that that I saw that uh, you know I, I want your opinion on because um, you are not in California right now, but uh, usually are right and. Uh, this is uh, a new law that's been passed by uh, the state legislature there, but has not been signed by the governor yet. Um, so he's got until the end of the month to uh, either sign or veto that. Um, but this will require uh, companies that are based in California to uh, one, publish uh, job salary ranges with their job listings, uh, and two, to publish um, data about their racial and gender pay gaps for uh, companies over a certain size. Uh, and uh, so notably, uh, Colorado and uh, uh, and Washington have similar laws uh, with regard to publishing um, salary ranges for job postings already. Uh, New York City has one that is going to be coming on the books in uh, a couple of months from now. And New York State also has one that is uh, that is in a similar situation to California's. So um, it between uh, between all these different places, it's uh, you know, something like 20 to 25 percent of the population of the U.S. is going to be uh, covered by by laws like this requiring employers to post um, uh, salary ranges when when they advertise a job. Uh, so so interested to hear you know, what what you think on uh, you know how how that's going to affect hiring uh, and and job seeking in in California. So I I do wish I would have been able to catch uh whether this affects whether the company is headquartered in that location or if the employee or I guess the the recruiting market that they're targeting is in that location because I think that that could have a difference uh, in a couple of ways, uh, one, you know, a lot of a lot of larger companies are based out of you know Silicon Valley uh, and the Bay Area. So if this is focused on hiring in those areas, I think that this will do two things. One, I think that this will also continue that push for like, hey, let's hire remotely. Um, and I hate to say that as like, oh, companies don't want to disclose how much they want to pay people, uh, but that's kind of the 
the truth in some ways. That's why this law had to be passed. I think the other side of that is if you're targeting the the actual employee pool or the recruit pool, that's interesting because I remember seeing companies in or companies saying we're just not going to have they're just not going to hire in Colorado. Like we're just we're like you can be anywhere in the US but you can't be in Colorado. At New York being on top of this as well makes it a little harder. Well, New York City at least. And then the state of California, like you said, that's just such a large percentage of like the US tech population pool. I hope that it does a couple of things. One, if they're hiring for remote employees, they have to publish this salary because that remote employee could be in California. So unless they're going to go out of their way to like make this special, like, Oh, let me check your IP address. And based on where you are, we'll, we'll put some numbers on the screen or not. I don't think anyone's going to do that. I think that what it's going to do is it's just going to create better pay transparency in general. And I do love the fact that they also talk about the gender and other demographic transparencies as well. Because our industry is definitely one that has been, in many ways, plagued by horrible like salary imbalances based on gender, based on race. And a lot of that is, you know, people in in diminished groups, you know, me being from one of those groups, I don't I don't tend to often think to ask. I, I wait for the offer or, I wait for them to give me a number and I don't know what anyone else around me is making. And, you know, that tends to go in favor of the company. So I I think by doing this in general, you're going to have more and more companies, more and more companies using Python being transparent about it. But I also think it's going to give hope to those new people joining the community as well, because they'll be able to see what that type of role can do for them in terms of salary. Yeah, so the language Bloomberg uses here is uh, any company that is uh, based or hiring in California. So, so both. Um, yeah, it's it's both. And uh, what you what you mentioned uh, a little while back was right. Some companies might just say, "Okay, we're not going to hire in Calif- uh, in, in in Colorado." Right? That actually happened. Um, that gets more difficult. You know, the the more states and the larger population. Uh, that that is covered by this, yeah. uh, right? Because if you say we're not going to hire in Colorado or Washington, California, or New York, um, that that's a that's a pretty uh, pretty sizable chunk of the population that you're now removing from your applicant pool. Yeah. And and that being said, we wanted to kind of talk about, a little bit more about the the idea of like the different careers and like companies that were available. Um, just that get impacted by this because this isn't just you know your uh fang or i think we uh we determined that the correct phrasing was matana now uh, for all of the all of the companies but these these are companies across the board so this is this doesn't just affect tech this affects tech adjacent and and i say that because a lot of python developers may or may not be working as software engineers, site reliability engineers, they be maybe working as, you know, data analysts, data scientists. You might be working in a job like my my background is from marketing and then I moved into tech. So you have people that are using Python that can then look and see, well, I'm in this role and this role normally pays about this much. And I don't have to go to like Glassdoor and see like the I guess kind of the skew of that. I can I can know exactly what this job is hiring for and the price of it. But on top of that, that gives people kind of a career trajectory. Like, hey, if if interns are coming in at this much, seniors are coming in at this much, and like the what's the difference in between? It might make sense to get that internship, go into another industry, work in the tech space in that industry to get paid. And then go back into software engineering and, and come in. That way you're not sitting there at one number at one lower level for a long portion of your, you know, early career. Yeah, I th- I think the, the thing that is kind of remains to be seen for me here is 
enforcement and 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 how these numbers are going to be accurate in the long term, right? Because um, you kind of have at you know at, at best right now, um, someone will advertise a a particular salary range and uh, you know applicants may self filter based on that, uh, but you know, you, you, you may also have um, these situations where you, you come in and say, you know, well, uh, I, I need higher than the, than the max you're advertising, or, or the company might say the other, you know, the opposite of, uh, well, you know, you don't have enough experience to, to really meet this tier. And, and so now we're going to, we're going to change the offer. Um, so I think it's obviously uh, in in New York and California these aren't even signed yet, so it's it's early uh, in this in this process uh, for sure. But I'm interested to see where it goes, kind of long term. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think you're you're onto something there because when I think of like okay, companies like to do like what's the you know the spirit of the law and then like the actual text that's in the law, and what I am almost certain will happen is you will get these vast numbers of like oh at the bottom level it's you know made up numbers it's 10 and at the top level it's like 90 and like oh it, it all just depends based on your experience we're gonna float you somewhere between this um i i hope that's not the case i hope that this kind of honestly gives people the opportunity to start I don't want to say like start calling out companies, but being like, you know, hey, if if you're required to include your your gender disparity, like your gender wage disparity, be like, why why is this number like why is it just not if you do this job you get paid this much and like leave it at that? And I mean, I guess I will I will come in with a ton of bias because I can't I come from a military background where there's like a formula that you can follow to know exactly how much someone's getting paid based on how long they've been there and what their rank is and all this other stuff. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that this will be an interesting topic and I'm glad that we have a ton of time for the next topic. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So uh, folks, folks that hang out with John and I know that this, this is a topic that comes up every once in a while. And uh, we wanted to talk about it today. Uh, there's a microservices company called uh, Lightbin who uh, created this product a few years ago, or almost a decade, or more than a decade ago, 13 years ago, called Akka. And they announced in the last day, or sorry, on the 7th, that they were changing their license. And and John, you know, we, we have this conversation a lot. I'm going to throw this up on the screen here. Uh, but the, the long and short of it is, is Akka has decided that after 13 years, they are no longer going to use the Apache 2 license. And instead, they are going to go to a BSL license, which is a business-focused uh, business license, business source license here, um, that was actually created uh, by MariahDB, another company that kind of made this decision. And they're making their product commercially available with a license uh, but they're making that license free for any company that makes less than 25 million dollars uh, in annual revenue but that means also there's a, a pay and that also removes the veil of open source um, again they say source available which means that you you will be able to see the code you will be able to see how things are made uh but that also means that if you're using it in any way, shape, or form for commercial purposes, you got to pay. Uh, John, I'm going to let you take first stab at this because I've I've worked for companies that have had licensing changes. Um, I, I can't really speak to the, you know, the reasonings on that. Honestly, I don't know the reasonings. They, they made their decisions. But uh, let's let's start by talking about this license change and what this means for, uh, you know, everyone raises their pitchforks and says, Oh no, OSI, OSI. Like, what do we do? But like, uh, what do you think about this news in general from this company? Uh, I mean, uh, so I, I haven't used, uh, the, the product itself, but, uh, it's not a particularly, 
new news item, right? We, we've seen a bunch of different products uh, announce a similar kind of thing, right? MariaDB, um, MongoDB, I think did a did a a, a pretty similar yeah, transition. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ser Service side public license, I want to say something like that. Or something like that. Um, uh, you know, there there are a handful of other. Um, uh, other kind of like major players that have have done a similar thing. Uh, I think a lot of this comes down to um, right. What's your your business model? Mm. Uh, and right, there's there's this idea of building out your open source product, and then there's uh, the separate idea of running a company, a profitable company, based on that thing. Uh, typically, right, that's that's kind of a, a support model. Right? You, you've got companies like Red Hat who uh, really are sort of the, the, the one to point to as um, right, how do you really commercialize open source? And it's you 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 provide uh, you provide good support and uh, and get people you know using that and then help them uh, through you know any any trouble that they run into. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of this, uh, in particular over the past several years, as uh, as you get to uh, the these situations where uh, some company might come in and say, "Hey, look, a thing we can host and then sell." Uh, right? I think that's what drives a lot of this decision, um, and what ends up, uh, you know, really. Uh, kind of shaping the narrative of why are we doing this, and uh, you know what what are we what are we hoping to uh, to change when we do right? And and this blog post itself uh, talks about sustainable open source, but um, as as you pointed out, uh, you know a, a lot of a lot of organizations that. Uh, aim to kind of define open source wouldn't agree that this is open source to begin with, uh, whether or not whether it's sustainable or not. Right. I uh, I think that I think that what happens is, you know, you, you mentioned it a, a little bit in in the idea of you have a creator whose thought is how do i how do i make sure i have as much help making this come to life as possible like we have open source code we have an mit licensed repo that is all of the code that runs this project uh and and we encourage people to contribute to it in fact in a couple of weeks we're going to be having like the conversation with people about how you can get more involved in like open source contributing and things like that so it it makes sense from the creator standpoint to say you know forget forget making a profit at this point i want to see a thing come to the world and what happens eventually is this idea that like okay people can't necessarily live off of wanting people to come and support their code um, and, and again, you know, we're talking about a product that's 13 years old here. Uh, and I don't know how long the company has been around, but my assumption is probably not 13 years because they would have made this decision a lot sooner. I think when the idea of how do you, I don't want to say capitalize off of this, but how do you, you make this affordable? How do you make this something that you can live off of? How do you make this sustainable? I guess is the, the term. If you're not thinking about that from the beginning, then you run the risk of one of two things happening. Either you wind up not being able to just because everyone can get your product for free. Why would they pay you for it? Or you wind up with other companies saying, I can take a business model, a business model and put it behind this technology and I can make a profit off of it. And, you know, that's, that's happened in the past there, you know, there are 
plenty of lawsuits on this. And, and when you have a license that says you're allowed to use this code for everything commercial or not, like they're in their right to do so. And, and that kind of becomes a challenge. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'll note that I haven't run a company that builds off of, uh, or, or, you know, whose, whose primary, uh, product is open source. Right. Um, and running a company is difficult to begin with, um, running a company where, uh, you may not know how to monetize the, the, the product you're building, um, difficult more so uh, and then add the layer of uh if somebody wants to self-host this thing they can um you know you 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 end up uh starting that that conversation on on your customers and of okay well do we have to pay for this or can we do this in-house cheaper um or right like you said um does some other business decide to come in and say you've done the the r d here and now we can scale it up um it's it's a, it's a difficult one um and you know i think i think the bigger conversation here is probably around um what is the goal of uh this this company's uh license uh what is the goal of open source here? And, um, you know, do those things align and, and should they? Yeah. You know, one of the things that, you know, this it doesn't really come up necessarily in, in this post, but I think it's something that can definitely be a part of this discussion is understanding what your, what a license gets you and doesn't get you uh, and and the many different types of licenses so let's let's say if if we had a brand new project and we wanted to have people contribute to our project is a license even required to do that and and i'm, I'm asking as as the layperson here and actually i kind of want i want your opinion on this because i've heard things in the past and i I think I've only heard them from a couple of people, but they've all always said the same thing that people can't even contribute to your project or at least know that they can contribute to your project if there is no license. Uh, I don't think that's strictly true. Uh, I think people can contribute to a project that doesn't have a license, uh, but right in, in the U S and in many parts of the world, uh, any, anything that is, uh, Right, so- software is subject to copyright. So mm-hmm. uh, the the code you write is is copyrighted, and uh, if if I go and I contribute some code to a project, uh, and I haven't agreed to make it, uh, you know, available under that project's license, um, that's that's my code, right? And and I can say, well, you're not allowed to use that, um, and and you know, I'm very much hand waving uh that in in terms of how simplistic it would be but uh certainly uh i i have contributed to projects that that don't have licenses in the repositories right it's um i i usually follow up or or alongside that will say hey can you add a license here because i would like to i would like to know that uh i i will retain the rights to use this thing that i'm that i'm uh contributing to and 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 adding value to but um that's a good right, point. there's there's nothing that says you can't right send a patch to someone's proprietary software um, that's actually a really good point of of the it's not even necessarily like are you allowed to do this it's are you contributing to something that you will have the ability to continue using in the future yeah and and that's right that's uh Right there, there are right the the uh, was it three or four software freedoms, right? Um, and and the ability to use your software is one of those, uh, and uh, so th- there there are a few things at play here. I think um, there's one the uh, the absence or presence of of a license, right? And this is um, 
you know, essentially shorthand for, uh, yes, I am sending you this piece of code with the understanding that it is going to be licensed the same way as the rest of the code in, in, in this project is, right? Um, but then there's also the idea of copyright in software in general, right? Because when I do that, I don't, I don't give away my copyright, right? I still own that code. It's just also licensed under the same license that the that the project is. So, you know, uh, ev everything that I have uh, contributed to open source projects, right? Um, authorship doesn't vanish. Uh, it's it's still there, um, and, and it makes it uh, difficult for projects to change licenses like this, right? And and yeah. and you'll see. Um, You'll you'll see when when uh, projects want to want to change their license, um, one that uh, comes to mind from a year or two ago is uh, an open source uh, audio editing tool called Audacity. Right, um, this was uh, bought by a company, um, and the the license was changed, and there were right. It's been a project for decades. Um, and so in order to, to really do that, you have to either get everyone to agree to the license change or, uh, or replace any code that uh, is present that, that uh, you know, you don't already control. Um, and that gets to be a pretty tricky issue, especially when you're talking about like derivative works, right? And, and you know, does this code that re-implements a particular uh, function in in a project, um, you know, exist without the original implementation of it? Uh, so uh, you'll you'll see uh, in in a bunch of uh, cases. Um, I'm blanking on the term for this, but uh, a uh, a con contributor agreement that says a contributor license agreement. Uh, that says uh, I am, you know, not only giving you uh, right this this code under, um, you know, under the current license, but I'm also giving you the permission to modify the license in the future. Mm -hmm. And let let's say let's say we're building a product. We're we're building, you know, Python Community News, the the app that, you know, scrapes all of the web and and then decides to publish it as a, as a service this isn't a real thing we're not i don't i don't have any intention on doing this uh john might i don't know not me uh, um but what how how does working with licensed code as a part of your code play as a factor of this um or i i think we're diving into what is the gpo <laughs> essentially oh. the, the the direction going we're we're going here so i just use mit license i don't i don't know <laughs> um so so there's a couple of uh different ways you can use code right you can um right you can you can pip install something right if you're if you're using uh if you're using python and and you've got uh third party libraries you want to depend on um and at that point, uh, right, you are using another library, but you're not modifying it, right? You're not you're you're not redistributing that library. Um, you're you're not uh, making modifications to it, um, and and then uh, sending it to others as right. This is this is my version of the thing, um, and so that is, uh, you know, a a pretty clear-cut case of um, uh, of not not needing to worry about the uh, the the terms of uh, trying to find the right words here uh, uh, modification and 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 redistribution uh, of a piece of software, right? So. Mm -hmm. Uh, but once you start saying, uh, okay, I'm going to um, take this software and I'm going to change its behavior by
by you know getting my own copy uh, and and modifying the source code and then sending that that app out to other people, right? That's where you get into okay. Um, this this is what the GPL is is kind of built around is this this hack of the copyright system of saying, uh, well, once you are modifying uh, a a piece of code uh, and and redistributing it. Um, the terms of your license say that the rest of your your application there is also subject to that same license. And mm. so, um, you know, if if right, we we take our our Python community news repository that just pip installs a bunch of stuff and then and then runs with it. That doesn't actually um, one. It doesn't redistribute anything to anyone. Um, so we're not we're not making copies of it. Uh, and and two. Uh, we're we're also not uh, modifying its behavior, right? We're we're using it uh, as as kind of a kind of a black box of um, you know even though we can go and and inspect the source of these things, uh, we're, we're not doing it as part of the runtime of our code. Uh, yeah. But when when you when you start doing that, it gets uh, significantly more complicated, and uh, you know a bunch of these uh, license changes that you've seen. Um, do result from uh, companies not wanting to be bound by the, those uh, those copyleft licenses. And I mean, I, I guess the other side of that too is when you're when you're bound by copyleft, or, or when you're bound by any license in general. Like the question then becomes, what what do I do to make it so that i can escape this and and i think that's where uh you know a lot of a lot of people joke about uh was it like not android os but like the the special form of java <laughs> that exists out there that's like ah you know it's 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 designed to not be beholden to some of the licensing and some of the ip uh issues that you run into uh, with certain languages and, and certain and programs. And, and I mean, that's, if I remember correctly, Python itself is a licensed product. Uh, sure, yeah. I, I mean, uh, again, anytime you create something um, like software, it's it's going to be copyrighted. And, and Python has its its own license. Um, if... If you go uh, pull up the you know the Python uh, GitHub page, you'll you'll find the Python. Uh, I believe it's just called the Python Software License. Um, there are a handful of other projects that that use it as well. Uh, and um, yeah, you know, if this was a uh, right a copy left license, then um, companies wouldn't be able to uh, right make modifications and then redistribute their own versions of Python. Um, and and uh, a big part of the 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 whole uh, issue when it comes to you know I am so and so you know big tech hosting giant and I'm going to start offering products X Y and Z as uh, as services on my platform uh, is there's nothing stopping that right now right um, and there are licenses that have there are open source licenses that have attempted to do it. Um, but you know, so much of this hasn't been uh, actually tried in a courtroom so far, um, and uh, and it's it's also a matter of right is is any of this um, something that someone cares about doing? And and so if if a company can get all of the goodwill that comes with uh, saying you know we we support open source without actually having an open source license uh they they stand to gain uh, you know quite a bit in terms of uh what the what the community as a whole is willing to kind of contribute back um but right with with a lot of these uh, less restrictive licenses right your mit and bsd licenses um you can just go and and spin up a version of a of a thing right our our python community news show is um right the the code that's part of it um, someone can just go and take that and and build their own community news show with it. Uh, and I mean that's that's kind of the goal. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but 
you know, that, that, that goal becomes pretty muddled when you say, okay, we're going to take a whole bunch of investor money. And then, uh, 10 years down the line, we gotta, we, we gotta show them returns. Right. Uh, and yep. now, now you have to figure out, um, well, uh, okay. Investors look, look, see how many people, uh, used that code you paid for to build their own community news shows. Isn't that enough? You're and, telling me that the number of forks, uh, is not, that's, that's not a, a good indicator to investors on whether or not that's a, a healthy investment. It's an indicator of something. Uh, what, what that something is, uh, remains to be seen. Um, so, so like, I mean, we're, we're talking about this, you know, on a, on a community podcast because, I mean, more than anything, we we don't know who who is a part of the community. We have to assume we have, you know, someone sitting on that next great application. If there is a time, and I I know you're not a lawyer, you know, we can we can definitely make those statements. And and by the way, John did not know that I was grilling him on license <laughs> information this episode. Uh, that that kind of just happened organically, I guess, but. To your knowledge, is there any time to change your license? Like, when would that time be? Uh, I want to make sure I understand the question. Uh, since since I'm getting grilled here, I I have a a pretty pretty liberal license. You know, we'd say I'm using MIT license, and all of a sudden I say, "Hey, I might have my hands on something here. Perhaps I should." you know, swap it up and, and make it, you know, a GPL license. Like, is that, is that, is there ever a moment in which doing that makes sense? It depends on your goal, right? If, if your goal is to, um, right, the, the goal of the GPL is to uh, make sure that everything that benefits from it also contributes back, hmm. right? Uh, so, so the idea here is, um, Right, I'm going to use this this code in my project, and my project is super valuable because of that code. Um, and now I can't just take that and run. Uh, you know, I I have to give back, and I have to say, uh, you know, I've I've modified this code and uh, and and made it a hundred times better. And now the the community as a whole benefits from that. Um, and so, if if that's what you're aiming to do. Uh, if your goal is to uh, get this out to as many people as possible and maximize its value in the world, um, you know, do that as early as, as early as you can, right? Because the longer you wait, the more complicated it becomes, um, right? Because you have right additional contributors, uh, and you can't go changing their licenses, right? The licenses for the code that they still own. Um, right. They, they again. They unless they've signed a CLA, they don't give up any kind of copyright uh, permissions here. So um, you can't change licenses without their permission. Uh, and then, uh, additionally, right, if if you say, okay, well, we've got this big application, uh, and, and we've been working on it for years, and suddenly figured out that it can be much more valuable. Um, we'll change the license, you know, five years down the line. Um, everything leading up to that is still covered under that old license. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when when you see these things that like this company has been, been around for a decade, this open source project has been around for two decades. I think Audacity is like something 23, 25 years old at this point. Um, it's, it's not a trivial change to make. Uh, and... Uh, it it might be right less difficult in practice than it is on paper, uh, but it's still going to make make some noise, uh, you know, for for the crowds that care about those things. Yeah, and and I I think that that's that's kind of the big thing is you know with this, and with many license changes, there are, I guess, multiple sides to the coin. Um, I guess it's technically not a coin if there are multiple sides, more than two. Uh, but you're you're looking at the perspective of uh, how do my contributors feel 
about this change uh, because if they're contributing to something that is free and freely available and now it's no longer free and freely available, are they getting compensated? I mean, that that's a, a legitimate question. Uh, and then you also have the perspective of your users, which again, in this case, you have a service that was, you know, I, as most startups run, we have a great idea. It's off the back of open source and we'll host it for you and you'll pay, you know, the hosting costs. Uh, and then, you know, finally, again, you have that investor kind of interest as well of, of you know, if I'm putting money into you being able to do this, how do I know that I'm going to be able to make a return on my investment? And I mean, again, a lot of this comes down to if you make those decisions on day one, you can kind of always just say like, this is this is the nature of the product. This is the nature of, of what we're doing and what we're trying to do. Um, I think for us, you know, our project, we, we basically said, make it free for people to contribute to, make it free for people to listen to. And, you know, if we need to get paid to do it, we'll, we'll figure out a way to do it as long as it doesn't involve things that we're not okay with. And I think that makes our licensing decision easy of like, oh, hey, MIT license is relatively, you know, general. It's pretty permissive. It allows people to, to come in. And like you said, if they want to make, if, if they wanted to make another Python community news, I think, you know, maybe there's a conversation about change the logo at least, but like they're allowed to do that. And, you know, yeah. that, that, that just comes with the nature of, of doing open source work. And, and also, I guess that comes into the idea of what is your license protecting versus what is it not protecting? Because I think that a lot of people get confused of like, if I have a logo and I have a code base where that logo is presented and I have a, you know, MIT license, does that mean that people can take my logo and use it? Again, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know the answer to that question legally. Yeah, I mean, my understanding is generally no. The, the <laughs> artwork is not covered under under open source licenses. Um, there are licenses that are more uh, tailored to sharing uh, things like visual art and and uh, prose and and things that are not software. It's right. more like um, Creative Commons. Creative size. Commons, yeah. All of their different tiers of licensing, uh, right? Share alike attribution, all those things. Um, but uh, t yeah, typically your uh, your logo is not part of that. Uh, part of your 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 code base license. Uh, and right, if you go and you you look at a, an open source project like Python, right? The Python logo is not the python code base um they're they're, they're different things uh, and so uh you you can't just go and uh you know go and modify the python logo and use it for whatever you feel like um without you know and and this adds another layer of complexity uh because the python logo is trademarked uh right so trademark and copyright are a whole whole other uh conversation um but uh, yeah, it it really depends on uh, again intent, right? Um, if if you are looking to make artwork available to people, right? Um, an MIT license is probably not your best bet because that's not what it was designed to do, um, right? You go for a Creative Commons version, uh, and and you pick the one that is most relevant to. Uh, you know, how, how you want your artwork to be used. I was going to say, speaking of artwork, uh, what, what if an AI made it like, is that, uh, don't worry, there's plenty of news topics to, to hit on that. But, uh, I mean, was there, was there anything else you wanted to hit on, on licensing and, and licenses? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think there's, there's, uh, one thing I want to kind of circle back to, which is, uh, you know, when you see a a company that says, right, we support open source or or we, you know, our products themselves are open source, right? How, how, how does that affect you as a, uh, you know, a user of that or right, maybe an employee uh, or prospective employee rather? Uh, me personally, when 
this so this one this one's interesting because I've worked for a company that started as an open source project, uh, you know, product that became a non OSI, but still you could contribute to like that that whole thing, um, and and now you know I work at Microsoft where you know we use a a lot of open source and and contribute a lot to a lot of open source. Um, that's actually part of my job is like finding open source stuff. And if I can making contributions, I, I mean, that's, that is definitely a, a plus in, in my book. And I think that's what makes this conversation so challenging because I think that you could ask the same question in regard of where did the open source originate from and what's the perception of that source code like if if a company is selling a version of open source software and it doesn't appear as if oh no this is just a, a licensed or a forked version of this software and we do everything in our power to make it feel like it's something that we did uh, that that becomes hard it becomes hard to justify it becomes hard to explain um and you know, I'm I'm trying to think very carefully on how I word things because I don't want an email later. Um, but I I know that businesses have to think about their bottom line, and I I am not oblivious to that. Um, but I I will say the the immediate answer to your question is, you know, a company that is using open source. I'm I'm kind of indifferent to a, a company that is actively contributing back to open source uh, in a way that is very obvious of, hey, these people over here are doing a great thing and we want to support them or we want to contribute to what they're doing. Uh, to me, I find that as a net positive. Yeah, and I think, you know, the same kind of thing can be said for uh, community events and uh other other sorts of uh you know public goods yeah um that right uh i am always uh much more likely to uh to to want to help out someone who's already helping out the community um mm. or or especially uh you know if if they're if they're saying like i you know we want to do more here um that that's that's a great thing for me to hear and uh you know i i I think there are other people who share similar kinds of feelings. That's, I mean, I don't, I don't think we have enough time to dive deep into that conversation, but like the kind of understanding the, the complexity that is an open source, not conference, but having a conference with a, a generally open source uh, mentality to it. Because if I understand correctly, usually conferences deal more with like trademark and like copyright stuff not necessarily the the like technology parts that put those conferences together but i i could see both honestly i mean conferences deal with uh hotel block rates and catering <laughs> contracts but uh we we can get into that elsewhere um, spoken like a true conference organizer <laughs> uh, but but yeah, you know a lot of community run events uh, are, you know, share share a spirit with open source projects, um, right? And 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 it's a lot of uh, you know contributing to the community. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to your point, uh, we are we are running pretty short on time. I think we have a, a handful of conferences to uh, to talk about that are coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. We do, and I actually ran out of banner space to to put them up on the screen. So I'm going to switch over to my browser here, and we can jump right into those. The first one being Pi Data Global. Uh, Pi Data Global is happening in December, but their CFP is rounding up soon. Uh, so if you wanted to contribute to Pi Data Global, it's a virtual conference. You can speak from anywhere on Earth. Um, sorry for people on other planets, I guess. But, you know, you can you can contribute to that. Uh, but, yeah, get your CFPs in now because we're running out of time. What about PyCon Chile? I think I think Pi Data Global, you have just uh, just 
three days from the time of this uh this live stream so yeah so by the time this comes out you have two days (laughs) and if you're catching the newsletter it's the day of so like hurry uh, yeah, and uh, PyCon Chile is um, similarly uh, coming up in December, uh, but their uh, their call for proposals is uh, is open for uh, almost two months. Uh, so yeah, until the end of October uh, to to get a proposal in there. Um, so you have a little bit of time, but that time goes faster than you would think. Yeah, their CFP just opened. Uh, I think it opened this week, so definitely want to make sure that you get your your cfps in um i don't think i think this is going to be an in-person event so definitely shout out to all the people that are are in or around chile that can that can participate there or if you you can travel you know hey that sounds like a good vacation uh speaking of another a great event we have sci-pi latin america which we actually uh found out about this from uh one of the people in chat denny uh, who contributed as well thank you so much uh, but yeah, SciPy Latin America is is coming soon. And John, do you have the dates on that? Uh, I do in one of my many browser tabs. Um, <laughs> we got a lot of browser tabs open, folks. <laughs> uh, so SciPy Latin America is uh, September 26th through the 28th. Um, so that is about uh, about two weeks from now. Yep, that is that is happening very very soon and i don't think this is the url for that or maybe it's still loading oh there we go yeah so be sure to uh jump on to that um again it's already past the the time for cfps but definitely check out the the event when it happens and then uh, uh we also have PyCon portugal uh which is happening on september 24th uh so in a couple of weeks uh so the cfp is definitely passed but if you're in the if you're near porto um or you're near the university of porto in portugal then be sure to check that out as well uh, because i you know and it's good that you know john i don't know about you but i've i've been able to find out more and more about these many different conferences that are happening all over the world and and we do have some news from uh from denny that PyCon chile will be online and in person so uh, yeah, so if, if you want to uh, contribute or create a talk uh, for the uh, PyCon Chilean community there, uh, you can do so anywhere on the planet. And, you know, the, the talks will be, uh, I guess, available online and in person. Or maybe not. I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe maybe we'll just have to talk with Denny and be like, Denny, how to explain this to us. Uh, uh, which, by the way, if you have a conference or you have some news that you want to explain to us or at least let us know about, Again, you can do so by heading over to uh, the GitHub repo on the screen, github.com slash kjymiller slash python dash community dash news. Again, that may change soon. We're working on some stuff to kind of make it a little bit easier and give people an exact place to go and contribute both conferences and news topics. Uh, But if you are listening live with us, thank you so much for doing so. Be sure to subscribe, like the video, and, and share it with other people in the Python community, our hope is that we can grow a global community of people focused on uh, Python and wanting to learn more about what's happening in their community outside of the code base. And um, if you are listening to this, uh, either after the fact on YouTube or uh, through the podcast, then find out about our newsletter. Find out about those other things that maybe you can you can take this on the road with you. We actually have uh, a brief version of the show that's usually five minutes or less that is just the news uh so that is well i guess the news in the cfp and in conference announcements uh all of the things that are are coming up or have just recently happened so be sure to check out that and you can find all of that information at pythoncommunitynews.com john i think that wraps up this week's show right i think we are out of time yeah we are out of time, and unfortunately, we're not going to have a show next week. Uh, I'm traveling. Uh, well, I'm already traveling, but I will I will not be able to record live next week. Um, but I do know that we have a lot of things coming down um, in the next few weeks. I think we're talking to some people about Hacktoberfest coming up, uh, and who knows what's going to happen the week that we return. 
But of course, like I said, pythoncommunitynews.com is the place where you can find all of that information. And there will be a brief next week. So you will still get the news of next week. It just won't come with all of the uh, uh, banter and me grilling John about licenses uh, involved. But uh, yeah, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode. I've been Jay Miller. I've been John Bonifato. Uh, and thank you for checking out the Python Community News. Uh, to y'all in two weeks. <laughs>